it's for the fans, isn't it? You know, however they felt, <laughs> however the fans felt, it's how I feel. Because I'm here for them. That's what I'm here for. It's good to hear you say you're an entertainer in the end, yeah? To a degree, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, but tell me why you're disappointed about it, then. Because it wasn't a knockout. It wasn't a knockout. And I feel like the fact, like the people are bored of 12 rounders, man. Do you know what I mean? They're bored of 12 rounders. It's annoying. <clears throat> but He's a very, very durable opponent. Come on. I think someone will knock him out, though. Huh? I'll come, I'll come, I'll come, I'll come. Yeah, the fans love you. Um, when you're in that, towards the latter stages of that fight, obviously there were there were moments early on where he was incredibly fast and made himself a very small target, but you worked him out, you fatigued him, you took over the fight in the last four, five, six rounds. Were you looking for a finish at the end there? 110%, 110%, even after the book. <laughs> yeah. What was that all about? Um, you're in a... You don't really want to like start scrapping in the ring, but it's a fight, man. Sorry about my language. Look, it's so different in this ring to what people see outside. I think you saw it in Saudi. <laughs> it's really different in the ring. And um, I've got to learn to control certain aspects of, of who I am as a professional. Hey, and welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where the whole of Britain's hoping Joe Joyce can do it, but. That's a hell of a task. <laughs> Imagine having to fight the guy who's like the bigger, taller, stronger, heavier version of you. Like you're the juggernaut and then here comes the oil tanker. So it's a big ask of Joe, but if, if Joe's really about what we think he's about, this is the time he's got to show it. Like champions are made in adversity and he's really up against it. But we're not going to talk about that today. Because I'd rather talk about it when the fight's done. I don't think it's going to be the greatest build-up to a fight. Uh, generally, Frank Warren shows quite flat in the build-up. <sighs> I don't know why, but, you know, you can't, <laughs> you can't give everything to Dev. Like, there's only so many tweets Dev can do. There's only so many, uh, you know, 60-second clips Dev can put up. Like, everyone at that organization needs to start pulling their weight. And I know Frank's doing more interviews, but Frank's, like, 85 years old and that's no disrespect to him but we ain't trying to hear that like we need the quick-witted stuff we can't have the i need to read off seven sheets of paper just you know there are enough people at queensbury there are enough brain cells at queensbury that they can line up uh, an attacking three that is not just dev and that's no shots to dev i think dev does a great job i think in terms of being a loyal queensbury soldier He's gone above and beyond the call of duty, but they need to up their, their fight week game, for being brutally honest. But the purpose of today's episode, as the title says, is just, you know, let's put it out to the audience and get some questions and see if we can sort of create an episode that feels different to the last few that have come through. And let's just see if it can force me to think on the spot. So how I'm going to do it is I'll shout out your, your social media handle. Um, if you wanted to be anonymous, sorry, but yeah, yeah, you should have put that in the note, but just joking. And then we just deal with the question. So question one comes from uh, Kasim73, and he says, what changes would you make to, to gyms to help improve British boxing and take it to that elite level? And Which is an absolutely fascinating question. So for me, I take a 360-degree view of this. So when we look at what makes British boxing elite, 
So there are a number of elements to that for me. So one, are fighters should be able to win world titles and hold on to them without having to cherry pick opponents. So that's the test, right? You should be able to get to six, seven, eight defenses of your belt, mandatories, voluntaries, and we should look at that run and go, that was pretty good. Right? That's the first test. We'll even accept you losing some if you win it back, and we're like, okay, fine. You know, we'll put that as elite. Then we need a group of boxing coaches that are able to produce that level of talent consistently, generation after generation after generation. Sometimes making a silk purse out of a sow's ear, sometimes taking a bit of dirty gold and polishing it up, you know, finding those rough diamonds and shaping them. All those dimensions, I think we, we need a critical mass of trainers able to do that, which we don't have. And then we also need that pipeline for the amateur side. So kids who are going to go on and compete and do well at international tournaments. But not just do well in international tournaments, but do that and be able to transition into the pro ranks and be as successful, if not more so. Right? So, so I always look at boxing from a talent perspective, from that, from that angle. And when you look at this country, I've said it a lot, man. A lot of coaches are pretending. A lot of coaches are just jobbing. A lot of coaches are just happy to have the lanyard. It makes them feel important. They can sit in their pub and go, I'm a boxing coach. Like, doesn't matter if you produced winners, champions. I'm a boxing coach, right? And so that means that their mates come to them for opinions on boxing and all this sort of stuff. And however you've got to define yourself and find happiness is entirely up to you. I'm not here to judge. But be good at what you do. You know, talk to the level of your achievements. Talk to the level of your capabilities. And let's go from there. And right now, like, we struggle to find that top 1% of coaches. There's no wonder that the people who were, the people who were training people when you guys all got into boxing are still there now. Joe Gallagher, Tony Sims, um, Adam Booth, Dom Ingle. I mean, you guys, all those sorts of guys are still there, right? So when you look at that, you go, how, how the hell is this true? And the truth is, the young kids that came through didn't do the apprenticeship. So the first thing I would do, if I'm being honest, I would remove the distinction between amateur and pro gyms. There are too many damn gyms in this country. For the amount of talent we have, it's spread too thin across gyms. It's private gyms. Tyson Fury's got his gym. Um, the Peacock have their situation. Adam Martin's down at Adam Booth's gym. Um, Joe's got his champs camp. And they're all these sort it's all kind of dispersed. And then they're all, then there's the amateur gyms. And I'm not here to say which gyms should rise and which should fall. Like, that's up to what those guys are going to achieve. What I am saying is, we spread what's already quite a weak talent pool so thin that the best welterweights rarely get to spy each other. They see each other at tournaments and stuff, but they don't get to work together, so they don't get that week-in-week-out improvement. So the first thing I'd do is I'd remove the, the distinction between amateur and pro, right? None of this, you've got to train in a separate building, it's one gym, and if, if, if you've got the lanyard for both, you can train both. Like, you don't even call it a pro-am gym. It's a boxing gym. If they want to put 
kids out in the amateur shows, they should be allowed to do so. I don't see what the issue is with that. And here's what that would do. It would create natural hubs for boxing talent. It would mean that, a, I don't want to call him a journeyman because like Robbie, Robbie Chapman's a good man, but the B-side guys would get to know what venues they can go to to get some quick work, some quick high-quality work, keep them sharp, keep them ticking over, and they can help the youngsters develop. The youngsters get exposed to guys like Robbie Chapman. They should also get exposed to the guys who are on the other side, like a David Adelaide. All of this stuff should be happening organically. Like, I'll give you an example. You take my fitness gym. In any given week, I can see Jerome Stay Ready Campbell. I can see Robbie Chapman. I can see Dennis Wahome. I can see a couple of amateur kids who train out of Cuban Boxing Academy, Power Day Hooks. Um, there's some MMA boys who train up at London Shoot Fighters. This isn't a typical week. Um, you got the dude... Um, whose brother runs AFTV, who does the interviews as well, he's there. But we're never there at the same time to share that knowledge, because if we were, like, and it's happened a few times where we've all come together, actually add in Prince Patel too, but he hasn't come anymore. Yusuf Kamari used to. If all of these guys were able to share knowledge, experience, wisdom, game, everyone leaves that encounter better off but everyone's atomized in their little gyms because coaches are insecure that if you go and talk to somebody else, you'll know more than they do. And so they keep you in a really tight box. And this isn't really about naming names because if you're in the game, you know who's who. And it's not always the people you think are the blaggers. There are a lot of people who perpetrate like they're old school, they're this, they're that, and they're clowns. They are clowns, they're an embarrassment, and they, they're yesterday's men and they can't accept it. But that's the first thing I'd do. I'd, I'd remove that barrier between amateur and pro gyms. I think they should compete differently, 100% for now. Uh, you know, are we far off pro-am shows? I'd find it hard to believe that boxing economics can support two separate streams, but we'll see what time tells us. So I'd do that. The second thing I would do is you cannot coach in an amateur gym until you've done an 18-month apprenticeship under a recognized coach, like a Lee Pullen, um, like Dave Kenny down at Kirby, um, who else? Glenn Rhodes up in Sheffield, the Sanigars in Bristol, um, Golden Ring, whoever the guys down at Pinewood start. You have to do a two-year apprenticeship. And it should be verified. And then people will be able to go, okay, you've, you've shown your commitment to, the, to this. You shouldn't be able to just be, well, you're a PT doing pads in January and in April you're, you're calling yourself an amateur coach. And in a year's time, you're a level two, you can run a gym. But what the hell do you know? Nothing. There are so many shows where you go and you see, it's just people making it up as they go along. So that, that's the other thing. Coaches should have to do an apprenticeship. So when someone does see you or you go to a new area and you want to train, and say, who did you come up under? And you can say, yeah, you know, I came up under Adam Martin or I came up under Sid Khan or I came up under Winston at Ballum. Oh, okay, cool. That's fine. Came up under the Haglands at Islington. Okay, fine. We can verify that. That's what got me a long way was my connection to Mick Carney. 
because they were like, well, if, if Mick gave you the time of day, you can't be half bad. So I'd do that. I'd also, I'd take some of the money away from GB and I'd have it as prize money for, for amateur boxing in England, the ABAs, the novices, the juniors, the schoolboys. I'd put money into that to give these kids an incentive to, to stick at it. Um, I think GB has proved to be perfectly designed for what it needs to do, and that is justify its existence, and it does that through getting medals. But in terms of producing guys who were going to pay £25 to watch fight, nah, we, we failed massively. Failed. Because we, we don't recruit based on heart. We recruit based on how willing you are to do as you're told, uh, GB don't like big characters, they don't like people who stand up for themselves, they don't like people who think for themselves. So that's why we don't get very good pros coming out of GB. And I'm not saying that to disrespect those guys, I'm saying for the hype around GB, these guys don't go on to become world beaters. And it's as simple as that. So in summary, I genuinely just go back to some of the stuff that was happening in the Mickey Delaney, uh, Stevie Newland, um, all those sort of old school guys, rest in peace, Steve Heiser. The stuff that was happening then worked. It worked then, it would work now, it will always work. Perfect your jab, perfect your footwork, learn how to defend yourself. That's all. And then, I, like I said, pull the barriers down so these kids get used to getting hit by pros. So mentally, it's not a big leap for them when they turn over. A lot of people struggle psychologically with that move from amateur to pro because they're not used to that difference. If you're educated in that difference from a young age, then you see it genuinely as my amateur career, as my apprenticeship for the pros. There shouldn't be a massive adjustment period. You're just adjusting to logistics, getting your hands wrapped, doing press conferences, doing public workouts. That's all you should be adjusting to. You shouldn't be adjusting to what happens in the ring. And I think if you look at guys like Anthony Yard who came up sparring pros, that's what you see. O'Hara Davis came up sparring pros, that's what you see. Same with Spider. You see this kind of inner confidence that they can get busy because they've always come up that way. And that's why I'm a firm believer in that approach. Uh, one Mr. London says, um, another episode with Larry. Uh, quick answer to that is, I'd love to. But here's the hard part when you do an episode with Larry. We're getting very close to the point where we're just going to start talking compounds, dosages, timings, and stuff like that. And then that gets very dangerous because we're putting stuff in the public domain that can be dangerous if used without the right understanding, support, supervision, and explanation. My nightmare scenario is someone goes off and takes a load of gear, heart packs up, then hospital going, well, I listened to this podcast and they said that this would be a safe dose. And so, just got to tread carefully with the stuff Larry and I discuss. I'm not saying this is Larry's fault or my fault. I'm just saying that we can get really into the detail. And so, that can be quite dangerous. So, we'll do another one. But I think we almost need to let some of this stuff bubble through and reach a conclusion. So, we've got to see where the legal positions are, where the defences stand, where we stand with compounds, what's new, what's different. Because we're in a state of flux right now. We need to understand why are so many people getting caught? Why are they getting caught for these compounds? Who's next? So I think there's a lot more to come. So let's just see where the, where the chips fall. But no, no, there'll definitely be another episode with Larry. There'll be another one with Greg. There'll be others as well. 
it's hard sometimes. So just, just by way of context, most people assume I can just hit up Denzel Bentley and phone him and go, let's do a pod. And he goes, yeah, same with Dan, same with Spider. But these guys are in the, in the purple patch of their careers. So they need to go where everything makes sense from a business perspective. And they may think in their heads that actually being affiliated with me isn't going to help them. So they go to other outlets that are maybe more amenable to the powers that be. And they do their thing. I'm not mad about that. And I think I've said this before. The, ga- the game of boxing works like this. Everyone's cool on the way up. And then eventually someone crosses over. You win a British, you win a European, you win something. And a different group of people slot in. And these are the guys who promise you the world and they say they can get stuff done for you. And some can, some can't. Harsh reality. And so they go through this phase and phone calls don't get answered and messages don't get responded to. And I've been here so many times that I know you just got to wait it out. And then eventually the world will move on. And then those friendships just pick up again. Once that kind of storm of attention is gone. So at some point, There'll be, and there'll be some content with me and Dan and Denzel and whoever. There'll be content. But right now, those guys are out there trying to get money that secures their future. Because the last thing I want to see these guys do is serve people groceries and Morrisons. And I'm not saying that's a bad job. What I am saying is it's a hard job when you've been on TV. Because people look at you and go, what happened? So however they go go and get their money, that's fine. If I've got to fall back, I'll fall back. But these are the things you just learn being in the game for a long time. It's just what it is. It, it, it won't change for me. It won't change for you. It won't change for anyone. So I think that answers the episode question. If anyone's to talk about nutrition and training, I'm going to park that for like a separate episode because there's so much you can go into on that. Just know that if you're a professional boxer and you're deadlifting two and a half times your body weight, you're not going to transfer that over into the ring. What you are going to do is risk a ton, ton of injury. So I see guys squatting super heavy and I'm like, that's good. But as long as it's well within your tolerance, like as long as you're lifting numbers that are so far below your max, even though they look impressive to the public, you know they're easy lifts, I have no problem. Boxers shouldn't be hitting one rep maxes. Like I, I know you'll hear people from the West Side saying you got to hit a personal best every time you walk in the gym. <laughs> you do if you want to be a powerlifter. If your goal is to be the strongest man in the world, then you should do. If your goal is to be strong enough to knock someone out, you don't have to do that. You just don't. Because a lot of those lifts don't carry over into boxing. Go and argue with your mum. I'm telling you this now. A lot of those lifts don't carry over into boxing. Boxing's really about muscular coordination. It's about tendon strength. It's about tendon connection, surface area. Same with your ligaments. All that sort of stuff. Like it's, boxing strength is like a systemic strength. That's how I describe it. It's like a, like a chopping wood type strength where the whole body has to coordinate the right way in the right sequence and the right amount of energy, or it goes wrong. Gym strength is cool and it looks good, but it translates so little into boxing 
I wouldn't say don't bother with it, but most boxers spend too much time on it. They spend a lot of time on lifting weights, not enough time on balance, stability, stuff that actually gives you career longevity, mobility, flexibility, um, mental awareness. They don't work enough on that and they focus more on squats, deadlifts, Olympic lifts and sitting on what bikes. Next question is from Lead Wright. I'll summarize it because there are a lot of words in the question. Riku. Um, in essence, it's where are we at now with the boxing media landscape? Um, it's looking like a bit of a recession out there, looking pretty savage. Um, and then the second part of the question is, how do you build a boxer now as we head into this kind of boxing recession or this time where boxing is less relevant than it was maybe five, six years ago? First question, boxing media. Whew. So it's hard to separate truth from fact because, like I said, a lot of people pump their numbers. right? Um, they pump their numbers so they can catch the algorithm quickly. So if you do a thousand views in a minute, the algorithm thinks you're important. So you kind of, you get taken to the fast lane of content and access. Yeah. I think YouTube are stepping away from this now and it's more about what are you actually interested in. So it's more around what do you spend most of your time watching? So for example, I think I've done about 12 Porky, Porky's Corner videos in about four days. So my front page on YouTube is Porky's Corner galore. And so I understand that. But I don't get a lot of IFL stuff because I don't watch IFL anymore. I don't get a lot of that. Whatever those, those, those guys are doing the, at boxing news, I don't watch any of that. So I don't get a lot of that. And I can't be the only boxing fan that doesn't get a lot of that because I'm there and I'm like, hmm, who's got time to watch this five-hour block of content that's been uploaded in 24 hours by one channel? The answer is nobody, right? We ain't got time to watch the videos. We ain't got time to watch the podcasts. We ain't got time to watch the the fights for god's sake we don't have time and we're very time pressed it's not like the lockdown where we had 18 hours to just watch content on top of content on top of content but people can't accept that so their assumption is well i'm just not pumping enough money into whatever i was doing before save your money no one cares about boxing apart from the people listening to this nobody cares i look at my numbers now and they're sort of acting a bit funny now. I don't even know why. Like SoundCloud have sort of played around with the proposition. So I'm a bit like, oh, I'm getting more numbers here. But they don't feel natural to me. But I'll take them. If someone's giving me numbers, I'll take them. Because I can always take those to marketers and advertisers and go, look. But I'm seeing it like I'm not... Like last year, this time last year to this time this year, there was growth. I don't believe I'm going to grow next year. I think I'll shrink next year. And in my head, that's why I'm like, that's the time to exit because we're not going to do the numbers. And I don't think it's down to anyone listening to this. I just think it's boxing's irrelevant. It's hard to tap into the casuals. Like I used to think I'd, I'd go on Facebook and I'd see these pages and it'd have like 400 likes and like 100 comments. And I was like, uh -huh. And then you just realize it's the same people having the same arguments. Like they're not growing the sport of boxing, they're not growing the footprint. It's just they're just doing more and more stuff. And so I was happy to, to swerve that because the value in me doing this 
is actually in the human relationships I get to build. Nothing else really matters to me. The numbers are cool and they buy me credibility because I can post my numbers up if I need to and say, look, put your numbers up. And it's hard for the people to put their numbers up because they haven't been working at building this like I have. But overall, all these people, like the boxing news, massively irrelevant. Um, they can do whatever they want to digitize. But it's essentially your granddad talking about boxing. That's really what that is. Boxing social, that's the young kids thing now. You know, there's Charlie Parsons trying to do the banter with middle-aged Eddie Hearn. But hats off to Charlie Parsons. I think he's given us really, really good content, sharp, clued up kid. So I'm not going to knock him. IFL obviously have the superstar Uma Ahmed, who still gives us classic moments. But I just don't think people care anymore. I think they've been lied to and disappointed so much, they realize boxing's not going to give them what they want. And so this is affecting ticket sales. Just, just to illustrate how stupid our sport is. On September 30th, you've got a matchroom show at Wembley, which is a next-gen show in all but name. And then you've got a boxer show at York Hall, which is a next-gen show in its purest form. Now, here's, here's the problem. Ellie Scottney fights at Wembley. Caroline Dubois fights at York Hall on the same day. Somehow, Shane McGuigan has to be able to do both of those. Like, talk about, like, what a waste. So Shane's got to be able to do both of those. So he's got a corner L, and then I'm sure he's going to have to run all the way back to York Hall to then corner for Caroline. Insane. There isn't enough interest in boxing for both those shows to make sense financially. At the level they're pitching those shows, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> this is why the sport's dying. Like At some point, the board have to get these promoters in and say, you're messing the money up. But the promoters control the sport, so what can you do? But if we switch gears now, we just talk about how do you build a fighter in this profile, in this current market, sorry. Rule number one, if you only connect with people about boxing, they will forget you as soon as they forget about boxing. So you've got to connect across multiple points. Um, someone who loves boxing and loves F1. So you might be that boxer that loves boxing, that loves F1, or loves gaming. If you're not providing on your social media that second window into your life, then you're conning your fans. Because your fans want to know you. Like, th there are bits sometimes where I have to give elements of my life away and say, look, this is what I'm doing. Sometimes I do it because I know it's valuable to someone. So there are times when I do struggle, spiritually, whatever. And I've talked about those before. There are times where people have disappointed me. I've talked about those before. But one thing, hopefully, you guys have always learned from me is I always take a step forward. And I say, right, I know this isn't good, but let's take a step forward and see if the world doesn't look different after a couple of steps forward. And that's what that's about. My test is always this. Like, I think you will listen to this if you don't mind having a beer with someone like me. If you're like, I couldn't drink with him, you can't listen to me. I must annoy the hell out of people. And so boxers have to do that. 
I don't know why more boxers don't have hobbies like, I don't know, fishing, which is high participation. Uh, gaming, massive participation. Uh, basketball, massive participation. You can do all of this stuff as a boxer and build your name off that. And just be a guy that talks a lot about basketball and then suddenly goes, oh my God, he boxes. This is the whole model of the YouTubers, right? Salt Pappy. Salt Pappy went viral for literally rubbing salt in his hands. He went viral for literally rubbing salt in his hands. And now look, sells more tickets than most boxers. Because people connected with that character. Oh, we quite like this old Pappy guy. They would have turned out he could box. They were interested. I want to see what he does in the ring. So what you want to do first is build an emotional bond with an audience. Doesn't matter who that audience is, you build an emotional bond with them so they're invested in you. And there's a good chance they'll follow you. I don't think it has to be overly structured in boxing. I don't think I need a three-year marketing plan. I don't think I need... Um, a complex media plan. I genuinely need a hobby that has a large number of participants and I need to have something interesting to say in that space to build that brand and that engagement. And then, once I've built that audience, bring them over to boxing. Because what does everyone do? Everyone just jumps on and goes, Oi, boxing lot! I'm fighting soon. Do you want to buy some tickets? And everyone asks the same people. So you get like, in, 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 a, in any three-month period, you can get 10 to 15 requests to buy tickets. No one's buying those, that many tickets. So why not look further afield? Why not work to bring people into the sport? Because here's the harsh reality. People believe by selling tickets, they're making the promoter rich. No. <laughs> when you sell tickets, you're making yourself rich. And I always like to look at music because I've got friends who work in the music business and here's, here's what I understand about the music business. Wireless can pay you 65 grand to perform on their stage, but you're on their franchise. You're a pawn in their game. You may get 65 to perform at Wireless, but you're getting a grand to perform on your tour, a grand a show. And people often mistake the two. They think because they get to play a wireless, they've made it. The truth is, until you can make 65 grand doing your own shows, you haven't made it. It's the same with boxing. You can box on matchroom shows, but your goal should be, I could sell out your call if it was just me fighting. That should be the goal. And that's what Ted Cheeseman tried to do. Let me just do 400 tickets at your call, off my own back. Not many boxers are that ambitious. And until they are, they're not going to do the numbers that make them interesting. Johnny Fisher and his old man have tried that, that whole Bosch movement, the Chinese thing. And yes, it's cringeworthy. And yes, watching Fat John fucking Fisher um, get pulled up by James Haskell and he's struggling. It's, it's all a bit cringeworthy. But you know what? It adds layers of engagement that a lot of boxers don't have. A lot of boxers literally will post videos of them training, running, eating, and they expect you to be interested in that. Like, somehow that's interesting. And this is why I don't understand people who criticize Ebony Bridges. Ebony Bridges does stuff that even I go, Jesus. 
Um, I'm sure a bit old for that. But in her defense, we know who she is. A woman that came over from Australia was a teacher like four years ago. Came over from Australia. And if you were to name women boxers, Ebony Bridges is one of the five you're going to name. She gets it. Now, you don't have to be as extreme as Ebony Bridges, but you can apply those principles. Number one, be known for something more than just jumping in the ring and fighting. Be known for more than just training. If you don't have time as a professional athlete to have other hobbies and interests, you're wasting your time. You really, really are. Because if you did this, it could parlay into a good business venture. Like I'm trying to think of a good example of this. Like Daryl Williams, I don't know if he still is, but Daryl Williams used to breed dogs. Like Daryl Williams, you can talk to him about dogs for ages. And I was always surprised he never built his own channel. I say the same thing about Anthony Tomlinson. These guys are like dog whisperers. They, they, they are really smart guys when it comes to, to canines. But we don't see them in that space. I'd happily watch that. Like, anytime you can show me expertise in something, I pay attention. But not enough boxers do that. And so it's very hard to feel sorry for them when they become quickly irrelevant. Because if you have one point of connection, you're one point of connection away from being irrelevant. If you've got four points of connection with your audience, one can fall, you've still got three. But the best analogy is this. Matchroom signing you is like them asking you to play at wireless. You need to know that if you weren't at wireless, you could go and play the O2 in Kentish Town. You could play the Hammersmith Apollo and you could do crazy numbers. That's it. And if that's what the target you set yourself in boxing, don't expect to make a lot of money. Next one is from Homer, I think it's 23192. Ah, I don't know these numbers. And he asks, would I take one punch of Wilder or 10 off Canelo? And I'm like, <laughs> that is literally um, your hand or your foot, right? Oh, Jesus. Ah, uh, wow. Okay. My instincts tell me I'd take 10 off Canelo. But then those will hurt as well. Maybe not as much as Wilder, but those will hurt. So... Hmm. I think I'd take one off Wilder because I'd rather be sleeping. Like, I'd rather be sleeping because as much as people don't tell you this, you don't feel it. When you get caught like that, you're just out. And you come to, and you're a bit groggy and woozy, but it's not like being pummeled with 10 shots. Imagine they're all 10 body shots to the arms, to, and you feel every one of those through the gloves. Ah, thanks, but no thanks. Nah. You don't, it's, it's a weird thing to explain what it's like to get hit by someone who knows what the hell they're doing. I remember the first time it happened, it was Anthony Small. And like, he just wanted to show how hard he hit when we were just moving around. And he threw a left hook to my right shoulder and my arm just seized up. It just went, <laughs> and he knew what he had done. And I was trying to pretend like I could still use that arm. And he was just like, he just shook his head. He's like, nope. Hit it again. I was like, oh man, he's just going to do this all the time. And then just when you're thinking about the arm, 
left hooks to the head. So you don't want to get hit by people who know what they're doing. And if you are, make sure it's just one and done. Man. There's no shame in that, by the way. Just go to sleep. See Charlie Zelenoff. <laughs> when Wilder caught hold of Charlie Zelenoff and life got real. It's like that. Although, does anyone know what's happened to Charlie Zelenoff since he started stalking Kim Kardashian? He seems to have disappeared. Which is a shame. Like he, How has he missed the whole YouTuber thing? How has Charlie Zelenoff not been on a on a Misfits show. Someone has to explain that to me because that's the ticket seller right there. Maybe I've missed Charlie Zelenoff being on one of these shows, but Charlie Z on DAZN X, it's a wrap. It is an absolute wrap. Next one is KJB94, who asks, how do you save English rugby? Um, you don't. If you, if you have a sport, that loses 50 million quid a year, you have a problem. Why are you paying people to play a sport that loses 50 million quid a year? And everyone does this in the hope that it will turn around. About 200,000 people play rugby every week. I think that's men and women. 200,000 people play rugby. So why aren't they watching it? Because BT Sport don't get 200,000 viewers for that. Why aren't they watching it? But the real problem with English rugby is the same problem we have with English boxing. We always believe there's a formula to stuff. We always believe you can deconstruct everything and build a formula for success. And the truth is you can't because you can't manufacture skill. You can't manufacture flair. You can't manufacture toughness. You can't manufacture desire. Those things walk into the gym on day one. Those things walk into a rugby field on day one. You can refine the skills that someone has, and that's what boxing training is about. But your footwork, your ability to move and balance, man, that's, that's you. Like That was your growing up. And what you find in England is, if you really just factor in the fact that all the other countries have figured out how to take steroids and growth hormone, we don't have the advantage we used to have. We used to always talk about how our pack was so dominant and then everyone kind of jumped on the compounds and now it's a lot more even. And when you look at that, you realise we don't have a lot of skill. If you've been watching the Rugby World Cup, for example, watch Fiji. Fiji just know how to play rugby. The French just know how to play rugby. The Springboks just know how to play rugby. We always call the Springboks a team that likes to bully opponents, but they can catch, they can pass, they can tackle... They can create space and they can attack space. England can't. We get the ball. Fucking kick it. Kick leather off fucking ball, mate. Fucking kick leather off fucking ball. Don't fucking pass. Kick leather off fucking ball. And that is English rugby in a nutshell. So how do you save it? I think you've got to let English rugby go bankrupt. Um, I think you've got to make it a state school sport. I would save rugby by doing this. If I was the rugby football union, I would build a youth team somewhere between Crystal Palace and Croydon. And I would fill it with loads of Congolese kids, loads of Ghanaian kids, loads of Sierra Leonean kids, loads of Nigerian. I'd fill it with loads of African kids and I'd teach them how to play rugby. And then I'd figure out where they fit into the matrix. Because we have been so poor at 
tapping into the athletic potential in this country. It, apart from the Premier League, I think the Premier League have been good. If you look at Gaza, Wilfred, Zaha, I mean, they've been good at doing stuff like that. English rugby hasn't done that. How the hell do you not just go into southeast London and just hoover up the talent and say, we're going to at least get some fullbacks, some wingers, some centers, a scrum half. Uh, we can teach the fly half stuff later, but we can get some of these, some flankers, because the French have done it. Like, we always call the French racist, right? Which I've never understood. But they always seem able to, to get Africans into their teams. And we don't. And people go, oh, he's playing the race card. I'm not. Look at the England team. Dark-skinned black people in the England team. Saka. And catch here to push. That's it. That can't be right. Look at the lionesses. Even worse. So we don't we don't tap into the natural raw materials we have for sport anywhere in this country. Like we don't, and it's not just the race thing. It's I don't know if you've ever gone and watched five-a-side leagues and you'll get some kids who came over from Poland and their old man taught them how to play football the Polish way, so they're really good technically. These kids don't seem to bubble up. They get ignored because what happens in this country is when you get to a certain age, it's just, are you bigger than the other kids? And then that's it. So you never learn any skills. And the little kids get farmed off and they end up playing lower league football, but they're good kids. And it's the same with rugby. Until we forget and ignore this obsession with size and power and stuff in kids, we will never be any good at anything. Well, let me rephrase that. We're good at stuff that requires money, like rowing and cycling and clay pigeon shooting and bobsleigh. You know, stuff that requires a load of money that you couldn't just do if you lived in Ecuador, for example. But when it comes to stuff like running, ain't that great. And rugby's got that same problem. You know, we know how to spend money. We don't know how to develop skills and real talent, unfortunately. Joe, just conscious of the time, I want to make this the last one of this episode. And then I'll follow up. There'll be another episode that comes. And allow me to get to bed at a sensible time for a change, guys. So, you know, have mercy on me, please. So um, this is from official coach Danny. So shout out to Danny Watley, who asks... What are my thoughts on Natasha Jonas versus Michaela Mayer? Although he, he put Michaela Mayer first, like she's the A-side. Cheeky, but it's all right. Um, and then also thoughts on it being 12 three-minute rounds. Oh, my God. Um, Michaela Mayer moving up to fight Natasha Jonas. Um, as long as the right wrapper of drug testing is around it, happy for that fight to happen. I think... My, my opinion is I think women can generally move through the weights better than men. Uh, they just carry more water, a bit more body fat. So they can move through. Like You're not fundamentally altering their effective weight unless you start Baumgardnering. Do you know what I mean? So if you're not Baumgardnering, then you, know, you can move between weights without too much drama, right? Because we, we look at them as weight classes, but realistically, Michaela Mayer is probably walking around at about... 67 68 kilos comfortable if not 71 so she's not she's not small compared to jonas and jonas isn't
big for a welterweight or even a light middle. She's not big. But I just think Natasha Jonas, as a southpaw, a southpaw that can dig, um, she's athletic. You know, people say, oh, she's nearly 40. That doesn't really affect women. Like, women seem to be able to run longer because as they get older and the estrogen has less of a catabolic effect, they seem to hold more of their gains. So they get stronger as they get older. So actually, I don't even think Natasha Jonas is close to retirement if she can still do the camps. I think she's got another couple of years in it. Although, to be honest, I'd like to see her just bow out on top and move into that celebrity world because if ever there's someone from boxing who deserves to be a celebrity, it's, it's Natasha Jonas. I think she beats Michaela Mayer. I think she beats up Michaela Mayer. Beats her up. Um, and if Baumgartner can do it, Jonas can do it. And yeah, I just think Michaela Mayer gets beaten up. I don't understand how she's garnered this much attention. I'm not a fan. Um... You go a long way with blonde hair in life, don't you? Um, and that seems to be it. You know, she's mildly attractive and she boxed in an Olympics. That's it. There's nothing else to her. She's not particularly tough. She's not mean or not my kind of boxer, to be honest. And, you know, I wish Terry Harper had dealt with her. You know, what's happening with her, man? See, Steffi Ball's gone all fucking Gary Glitter taking 15 year olds to Mexico. Who is he? Does he think he's Jerry Lee Lewis or Elvis knocking about with these 15-year-olds? And I'll come back to this point. What is it about that part of South Yorkshire and teenagers, right? Do you remember when Dave Allen was knocking about with a 16-year-old and Rob Tebbett was there in the hotel room sleeping on the floor and they were taking pictures and you had, like, grown topless men in beds and you had a 16-year-old boy knocking about in his underpants and no one asked any questions about that? Just saying. And now you've got Steffi Ball saying, I'm going to take a 15-year-old to Mexico to make them the youngest professional boxer. Like, doesn't she have school? Like, no one in boxing is upset? No one in boxing is concerned? You're telling me that like, Steffi Ball can take a 15-year-old kid that is not his kid? Where are the parents? Where are Steffi's fighters? And I say this because, like, I just remember the, the misery Steffi's kind of projected onto people. And, you know, you have to remember these things. As far as I'm concerned, like, the guy's a rat. And, you know what I mean? I mean rat in the truest sense of the word. So as far as I'm concerned, wherever he gets, he gets. But taking 15-year-olds and someone's dad hasn't put, put two in his neck? Pfft. Mate, South Yorkshire, have a word with yourselves. But if we come back to the 12, three minutes, this is tricky because people with no knowledge and understanding will go equality is equality. And it's a very ignorant position to hold, right? A very, very ignorant position to hold. We're now starting to see in more mature sports, like rugby, for example, the cycle of women entering and leaving that sport is so much shorter than the men. Women are retiring from rugby earlier, concussions, this, that, and the third, but it's mainly concussions, but there's the soft tissue injuries as well that come with vastly different hormone cycles depending on where you are in the month, right? So there, there are legitimate problems around women in contact sports that we can't be definitive about yet 
but these are being investigated. And they're being investigated as a matter of urgency. But the challenge is women's sports so new, we don't have longitudinal studies where we can look. What we can do is look at what's happening now. And there are women retiring from rugby at 26, 27, some at 31, 32. Keep getting headaches. Keep, keep getting sick. Um, I swear I've got CTE. All this stuff is happening now. And this isn't necessarily just at the top level. This is at many levels. So we need to understand whether men and women have a similar concussion profile. Whether, you know I mean, women have a higher risk. We need to do these risk assessments before talking about, yeah, just do 12, three-minute rounds. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm saying let's think long and hard about doing this. Because let's say Jonas Mayer is 12, three-minute rounds and it turns into an absolute war and it's kind of the thing we wanted to see. And by round 10, one of them's just finished. What do you do then? Do you go, well, maybe it shouldn't have been three-minute rounds. I don't know. Like the, the real answer is we don't have data one way or the other. We look at other sports and go, women are struggling a lot with concussions. Disproportionately so to the men. But if you then take a step back and go, let's look at it from a perspective of what does equality really mean? So here's what equality really means. Go and watch women's football where you've got a woman who's five foot four in goal and that goal is a standard football goal. Was that eight foot tall, 13 foot wide? You've got women kicking it from like, you know, the, the center circle. They're just hoofing it and it's going in because these, these women as brave and as dedicated as they are, they can't touch the crossbar. You get it anywhere near the crossbar, you're, you're good. That's why they get these ridiculous goal numbers because it's just, it's, as long as you hit it on target, it's likely to go in. And then look at the size of the pitch and the size of the women on that pitch. And I say that because if you have to take more strides to do something, that means that's more uh, power generation moments. So you start to wear your body out quicker as well. All of these things are important considerations that no one bothered to look at because the wrong people make these decisions. The campaigners, the people who've never played the sport make these decisions. You know the ones, they've got funny colored hair and they always seem to have knitwear. Wherever they go, they're just knitwear, even in summer, it's knitwear and long skirts that have coffee stains on them. They're the people who are telling you what to do in sport and they don't have a clue about sport. Let's find a solution that allows women to give the best account of themselves possible. If it's 10 threes, it's 10 threes. If it's 12 threes, it's 12 threes. If it's 12 twos, it's 12 twos. If it's 10 twos, it's 10 twos. Let's find out what allows women to be the best version of themselves. And let's build a sport around that. It doesn't have to be a copy and paste of what men do. Let's move away from that. Because that may not be what's best for the women, if I'm being brutally honest. So, so we can always talk about, ah, it's a big moment. And this is what I mean. The grift is universal and it's for us all because promoters are now jumping on that going, yeah, we can do this. Who's going to be there when people can't remember their birthdays? Because I know when it happens to men, everyone disappears. Apart from Nick Blackwell, who seems to be you know, Eddie Hearn's best friend now, but poor Nick Blackwell, what's he going to do with the rest of his life? And he's a young man. You know, a guy that I, I should talk about more and I want to shout him out now, like Charlie Wynn. What's Charlie Wynn going to do? 
No one cares. How many people hold your hands up if you went to visit Charlie Wynn at his worst? No. And we all know the story behind that. We need to tread very carefully in what we do in boxing for that reason. Guys like Charlie Wynn shouldn't be suffering in vain. We should be taking a very pragmatic approach of what is safe for the boxers and as fans, we should be pushing for that. We can't just always prioritize our gratification and entertainment at the expense of these guys. I just think, <laughs> sorry, I just think that way. But back to the positives. Mayor versus Jonas is a good event for Jonas. It's a good name on her CV. I'd also like to see her fight the winner of Katie Taylor and Chantal Cameron. I think that would be a perfect way for Jonas to bow out if that's what she chooses to do. If she doesn't, let her carry on. Natasha Jonas has earned the right to do whatever the hell she wants. And we should support her because what a second act she's had in her career. You know, massive respect to her. And on that note, I'm going to tap out for part one because I didn't realize I was going to talk so much about these answers. But hopefully you guys are getting out of them what you hoped you'd get. And, you know, as always, if you love the content, share it. Let's, you know, let's, let's grow this out. And I'll put the question out there. Should I put these on YouTube? Because if I do, it will just be as like a repository. Like I'm not going to push it. If, it. if they get 200 views on YouTube, who cares? Do you know what I mean? Like I, I like the fact that this is listened to in intimate moments, walking the dog or when you just need a few minutes to yourself or when you're on the treadmill or when you're driving your cab or when you're just driving to work. I like the fact that it's at those moments of clarity that this podcast comes out. So YouTube's not really the prime mover for me, but if, if it helps with accessibility, I'll start whacking them on YouTube. So please let me know. And on that note, I'll say take care, guys. Bye.